everybody. It's Pete. I have a distant relative who used to tell me all the time she almost died. She was once bit by a black widow spider. The spider was black. We knew that. Don't know if it had been married. She swore she was attacked by a bear almost while camping. The bear was never seen, but there was some evidence that her cooler had been pilfered. She said she almost fell into an icy river while rafting. Totally could have done her in. There might have been an asteroid in part of her story. She would call these her near-death experiences, and given the frequency of them over her life, you would think some element of the cosmos might have been trying to collect a debt. But no, in fact, she passed peacefully in her sleep, surviving the onslaught of perils through which she lived. In fact, none of these were near-death experiences, no matter how close she might have come to dying. I know this now because our guest today is one of the world's leading experts on the science and significance of the near-death experience. Dr. Bruce Grayson is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry and Neurobehavioral Sciences at the University of Virginia and joins us to share his work studying these things and the people who have experienced them over nearly five decades. What sets Dr. Grayson's work apart from the rigorous empirical research of my long-lost relative is that his subjects actually died. In some way, shape, or form, they stopped functioning physiologically. They had an experience, and they came back later. The stories you'll hear in today's show serve as a tour through the incredible similarities in those experiences and the work of Dr. Grayson and his team to understand them. If you'd like to learn more, we encourage you to pick up his book, After a Doctor Explores What Near-Death Experiences Reveal About Life and Beyond. And now, Bruce Grayson and Dodge Ray. Welcome, Bruce, and thank you so much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Dosh, for inviting me. I'm glad to be here with you. In addition to this being a topic that I literally think is among the most interesting I can imagine, and also a hell of a good book to talk about. Thank you. Um, part of what's fun about this is the full circle of getting to talk to somebody um, after having taken a class with Ian Stevenson, one of your mentors and colleagues, uh, when I was at UVA. And uh, it's stayed with me ever since. And so it's it's fun to get to talk with you now these many years later. Yes, I've been working on and off with Ian for about 40 years, and he's the reason I'm, I'm in this field, really. Yeah, I can imagine why. It was incredibly compelling. And like you, really courageous in investigating things that are really hard to bring science to. Yes, hard but not impossible. And uh, I don't know if it's courageous or foolhardy, but... Um, it feels like the right thing to do in terms of terms of what science is all about, investigating the unknown. Yeah. For those out there who aren't clear about what a near-death experience is, we're not talking about somebody who almost died. We're talking about something far more mysterious and profound and experienced than that. And we'll get into all of those components. But for a guy raised as you were, it's really fascinating that you got into studying this. Can you start where you did in the book and, and take us back to that that or that first story when you're a young psychiatrist? Sure, sure. I was raised in a scientific household. My father was a chemist, 
And we never talked about anything spiritual or religious in our household. It just wasn't part of our world. So I grew up thinking that the physical world was all there was. You know, when you die, you die. That's that's fine. That's just the way life was. So I went through college and medical school with that materialistic mindset. And uh, I was excited about a scientific career, you know, pushing back the uh, the realms of the unknown. And shortly into my psychiatric training, just a few weeks into it, I was asked to see a patient in the emergency room who had overdosed. And I was in the uh, hospital cafeteria having my dinner when the pager went off in my belt and kind of startled me. I didn't, I was new to this thing. Uh, and I dropped my fork and, and spilled some spaghetti sauce on my tie. Um, it was kind of late to change my clothes, so I just put on a, a white lab coat and buttoned it over that so to cover it up. And then I went down to see the patient, and she was unconscious. I could not arouse her no matter what I did. Um, but her roommate, who had brought her in, was waiting down the hall to talk to me in another room. So I went down to the where their roommate was and talked to her about 15, 20 minutes about what was going on in the patient's life, what she might have taken, and so forth. Uh, it was a very hot Virginia evening. And I was sweating, so I unbuttoned my lab coat so I wouldn't sweat so much, um, inadvertently exposing the the stain on my tie. And then when I finished with this uh, roommate, I stood up to say goodbye to her and noticed the tie was exposed, and I quickly buttoned it up so no one else would see. Went back to see the patient, and she was still quite unconscious. So she was admitted to the intensive care unit overnight, and I arranged to see her the following morning after she had awakened. When I came back in the morning, she was very, very drowsy. could barely get her eyes open. And I started to introduce myself, and she said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. And that kind of startled me because I didn't think she could see me. So I said to her, you know, I, I thought you were out cold when I saw you last night. And she said, uh, she opened her eyes and at that point looked at me and said, not in my room. I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. Well, that, hmm. that just blew me away. I couldn't imagine what she was talking about. The only way that could have happened is she had left her body and followed me down the hall. And I didn't know what that meant. As far as I could tell, I was my body. How can you leave it? She saw how confused I was and went on to tell me about the conversation I had with her roommate, the questions I asked, the answers she gave, where we were sitting, what we were wearing. And finally, she told me about the uh, red stain on my tie. I, I just couldn't imagine how she had gotten this information. It didn't make any sense to me at all. Um, but I realized that I couldn't deal with my confusion at that point. I was there to deal with hers, so I had a job to do. So I kind of pushed my feelings to the side and just dealt with her suicidal thoughts and so forth. And in the next several days, as I tried to process this, I, I just couldn't fit it into my worldview. So I tried to tell myself someone was playing a trick on me. Maybe the nurses had concocted this with a patient or something. I, I just couldn't imagine how it could be. And it wasn't until about five years later uh, that Raymond Moody wrote a book called Life After Life, in which he gave us the name near-death experience and described what these things were like. And I realized for the first time that what this patient had told me was not, not just one likely incident, but was part of a huge phenomenon. Um, and Raymond was actually working with me at the University of Virginia, so we got to talking about it. And eventually I went to Ian Stevenson, who was writing this Division, which is now the Division of Perceptual Studies, studying these anomalous experiences. And I started studying these phenomena, trying to figure out what's behind them. How do we explain them? And here I am 50 years later, still trying to understand them. 
fascinating too that it brings together two really strong you know impulses in your life one is to understand things scientifically and mm. the other is this growing exposure to things that are almost incomprehensible to the brain i mean they can right. be studied yeah. as you've proven beautifully in this book but yeah i could see why it would keep you it would hold you there for 50 years trying to understand <laughs> more <laughs> yeah well you know at the core of science is studying what we don't understand and if you study things we do understand you can pick up incremental bits of information but if you study things we can't understand at all that's where you make the big breakthroughs in science so when i had this phenomenon that i, I couldn't make any sense of at all i thought i need to look to look at this this is uh it wouldn't be honest to uh, pretend it didn't exist. So yes. an honest scientist, honest skeptic has to go towards it. And there were, I'm sure, a lot of colleagues, even, you know, um, direct superiors in your profession who did not want you to do this. Sure, sure. A lot uh, thought it just didn't exist, that patients were making this up, that I was making it up. And a lot thought, well, it, maybe it does exist, but it's not something you can study by science. So you're wasting your time doing this. And part of why they thought it couldn't be studied by science is because there's no way to set up, you know, um, controlled studies. This is all anecdotal, as it would have to be. And I, well, I love the quote in there about studying parachutes. Um, right. <laughs> this is where science starts. Sure, sure. Well, all, all science starts with anecdotes. You look, make observations, which are anecdotes, and you compile them and look for the patterns and then design experiments to test them. Somebody wrote an article in the, in the British Medical Journal uh, several years ago, uh, tongue-in-cheek, looking at uh, controlled experiments of whether parachutes work when you jump out of an airplane. So they found all the, the studies they could find in which people were randomly assigned to jump out of an airplane with or without a parachute. And they couldn't find a single one. So they concluded <laughs> that the evidence for parachutes working is purely anecdotal. <laughs> exactly. Therefore, this couldn't be so. Right. Yeah. Well, so you bravely pushed past that threshold to yeah. say all st science starts with the anecdotes. And you've compiled, what, more than a thousand, I think, studying from many different points of view. And so let's jump into what what is an NDE? And yeah. as you've pared down the essential features, what, are you, what have you found? Well, yeah, an, an NDE or near-death experience it's a profound experience that many people have when they come close to death or sometimes are pronounced dead that include unusual experiences like a sense of leaving the physical body, having an overwhelming sense of peace and well-being, um, often uh, having a life review in which your whole life flashes before you. You may look down and see your body and be able to describe things accurately going on around you. You may sometimes... Uh, enter some other other realm or dimension um, that is not this physical world. And it's often a realm that's filled with light and love. You may encounter beings, often a being of light, which seems to radiate unconditional love. You may encounter deceased loved ones. And at some point, you will come to a decision to return to life or sometimes be told you need to return to life and then find yourself back in the body with this bizarre thing that happened to you. No doubt deeply affected by it, as we'll talk Definitely. about. Yes. I'd love to double click on any one of those, so to speak, just to open up. I mean, each and every single headline you just read from is a fascinating subject and unto itself. Let's start with 
uh, rising up above the body and yeah. being able to experience what you physically couldn't possibly know. Well, let me say first that these these features that I mentioned are things that we've found by studying near-death experiences around the world in different cultures, different religions, even going back to ancient times and finding accounts from ancient Greece and Rome. And we've selected those phenomena that are consistent across cultures and across religions. And these are the ones that I mentioned. Now, the one, the sense of being out of the body, what we mean by that is actually feeling that you are outside and being able to look down and see your body from some out-of-the-body visual perspective. And often people can look down and see things and then describe them to us. Democrats will often say, well, of course, everyone knows what happens when you're being resuscitated. They see it on TV all the time. So, of course, you can imagine all this. But there are many cases where we, we find them describing things that are very unexpected, and yet they describe them accurately. Let me give you one example. A 55-year-old fellow that I knew uh, had crushing chest pain, was admitted to the emergency room, and found to have four vessels around his heart almost completely clogged. So he was rushed to the operating room for an emergency quadruple bypass surgery. Hmm. And in the middle of the operation, he says he left his body, rose up above it, and looked down and saw the surgeon flapping his elbows like he was trying to fly. Hmm. Now, when he told me this, I, I thought he had to be hallucinating. Uh, I, I'd been a doctor at 30, for 30 years at that point. I've never seen or heard anything like this before. You don't see doctors on TV doing that. Um, yes. So I assumed that it wasn't real, and he insisted it was real. So after the operation was over, a few days later, with his permission, I talked to his surgeon and asked him about it. And he kind of sheepishly said, yeah, that, that's true. I developed this unusual habit. I've never seen anyone else do it. While my assistants are starting the operation, I get my sterile gown and gloves on, and I walk into the operating room, and I watch them. I want to make sure I don't touch anything that's not sterile. So I place my palms flat against my chest, where I know that I won't touch anything. And then I point things out to my assistants with my elbows so I won't touch anything with my fingers. And he, mm. dot, he illustrated it. Looks just like what Al said, you know, flapping his arms. <laughs> there's, there's no way that Al could have known about that unless he had seen it. Uh, right. So how do we explain this? Even you as a doctor and one who's watched all the shows was said, no way. Clearly right. that one's a hallucination. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. Uh, Jan Holden at the University of North Texas actually studied about 100 of these cases where they were potentially corroboratable by outside people, by third parties. And she found that 92% were completely accurate. 6% had a couple of errors and only 1% was totally wrong. So it's not just a rare case. The vast majority in which you can find someone to corroborate it are actually totally accurate. That's fascinating in itself. And at some point later in our conversation, we could talk some about what are, you know, objections to the ideas that NDEs are real. But that right there seems mm. to put a stop to a lot of them because well, it's really hard to explain that. Yes, it is. So 92% of them end up being uh, completely accurate. You mentioned a moment ago, speaking of statistics, that NDEs are quite common, more than we'd think. What they percent are. of the population uh, do you know have these? Well, it's hard to get accurate data, but most people who have studied this across the, the globe have found out about 5% of the general population has had a near-death experience. When you look at people who have had documented cardiac arrest where their hearts stop, 
between 10 and 20% of those people will describe a near-death experience. And we all know more than 20 people, so we all very likely know somebody right. who's had this experience, whether right. they're talking about it or not. Someone in your family, someone in your classroom, someone in your workplace has probably had a near-death experience. Say some more about encountering loved ones on the other side. Yeah, a great many people who have a near-death experience report encountering deceased individuals. And again, the debunkers can easily dismiss these as wishful thinking. You know, you expect you're going to die, so you want to see deceased loved ones, so you imagine it. And that might be a plausible explanation for some cases. But there are a number of well-documented cases where people saw deceased individuals who were not known at the time to be dead. And that kind of takes expectation off the table. Yes. We have one great case going back to the first century. Uh, Pliny the Elder, the Roman historian, wrote about a case in great detail where someone saw a deceased person that was not known to be dead. A person that I knew was a, at the time, he was a 25-year-old technical writer who was admitted to the hospital with severe pneumonia. And he was having repeated respiratory arrest where he couldn't catch his breath. And he had one nurse who was his primary nurse working with him every day, uh, who was about his age. And one day she told him she was going to be taking a long weekend off and he would have substitute nurses working with him for the weekend. So he, you know, said goodbye to her, wished her well. And over the weekend, while she was away, he had another respiratory arrest where he had to be resuscitated. And during that arrest, he had a near-death experience in which he found himself in a beautiful pastoral scene. And there, to his surprise, was Anita, his primary nurse, walking towards him. So he did a double take and said, Anita, what are you doing here? And she said to him, uh, you need to go back into your body. And I want you to find my parents and tell them that I'm very sorry I wrecked the red MGB. Mm. And then she turned and walked away. Well, when he later woke up in his body, uh, he told the first nurse who walked into the room about, about this. And she got very upset and walked right out again. It turned out that his nurse, Anita, had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday. And her parents surprised her with a red MGB as a gift. She got very excited, jumped in the car and took off for a ride, lost control and smashed into a telephone pole, dying instantly. Shortly before he had his near-death experience. Now, there's no way he could have expected or wanted to see her in his near-death experience. And certainly no way he could have known how she died. And yet he did. And we have many, many cases like this. It sounds like it's really common to experience a sense of light. It's yes. described as yes. a light, but often accompanied by extraordinary peace, even a sense of indescribable love. Yeah. All, all near-death experiences say it's not a physical light like a, like, a, like a lamp, like a bulb, or like the sun. It's a living being that just radiates love and warmth. And how they describe it um, differs around the globe. This is the way religion and cultures play a role in descriptions of NDEs. Most NDEers say that there are no words to describe what happened to me. And then we researchers say, great, tell me about it. You know? So <laughs> we know we're forcing them to distort it somewhat by telling us. So they use whatever metaphors they have available, which usually come from their religion or their culture. So, for example, this, this loving being of light is described around the world. Uh, Christians will say, usually that's, that's God or that's Christ. Whereas Hindus and, and Muslims will not say that. Um, hmm. But they all describe the same basic phenomenon. 
and it's, it's something that's living and that's all-encompassing. And it often plays a role in, in helping guide them through a life review and sometimes in sending them back to life. Tell us then about the life review. About 30 to 40% of people describe in a near-death experience reviewing their lives. And it's in very great detail. And it often it, it encompasses their whole life during a, a near-death experience that was only a matter of seconds. And they all say that in the near-death experience, there is no sense of time, which we can talk about again later, but there's just time does not exist in that other realm. And they describe the near-death experience in very, very, I'm sorry, the, the life review in very great detail, uh, far more detail than they could have been aware of at the time things were happening. For example, one person said he remembered as a child sitting on a beach and just enjoying the sun. And in his life review, he could count the sand flies that were biting him. And he couldn't have done that when he was a child. But in his life review, he had extreme uh, clarity about everything that's happening. Furthermore, about a third of people who describe the life review describe experiencing it not only from their own perspective, but from someone else's as well. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, a fellow named Tom Sawyer had a near-death experience in his 30s when he was working under a truck in his driveway, and the truck fell and crushed his chest. And he had a very elaborate life review, and many of the incidents that he remembered he experienced through the eyes of someone else involved in the scene as well. And one that stands out to me is he was a teenager in this in this incident, driving his hot rod truck down the street, and a drunk man wandered out in front of his truck. He jammed on the brakes. He was furious because he almost dented his truck. So he rolled down the window and yelled at the man. And the man, being intoxicated, reached his hand in the window and slapped Tom across the face. And that was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he opened the car door, the truck door, got out, and started beating the man mercilessly and left him a bloody mass on the median strip, calmly got back in his truck and drove away. Well, when he had the life review, he experienced everything from his perspective and from the drunken man's. He felt his own rage and adrenaline rush, and he felt the drunk man's humiliation and embarrassment of being beaten by this little kid. He felt the 32 blows of the fists on his face. He felt his nose getting bloody. He felt his teeth going through his lower lip. And Tom came back from his near-death experience, really sobered by this, realizing that we're all in this together. We're all part of the same thing. And what you do to somebody else, you do to yourself, that we're not separate entities. You know, it's like if you look at your hand, at equal to five fingers, they look like they're separate things. But look at the palm, and you see they're really interconnected. And you can't injure one without making the whole hand feel something. He says, that's the way it is. And near-death experiences often say that they experienced the golden rule in their NDEs. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But for them, it's not just a guideline we're supposed to follow. It's a law of nature, like gravity. This is the way the universe works. When you help other people, you're helping yourself as well. And when you hurt other people, you're hurting other people as well. It's, um, I'm just finding myself trying to absorb, like, what it would be like to walk through the world knowing that for sure. Mm. That level of empathy would be It makes really you much incredible. more caring, much more compassionate. You see the divinity in everybody, not just yourself, but in everybody. Yeah. Well, it, it helps me understand then why 
you know, I spent a semester in, in India as part of UVA's, you know, semester in India program. And and their simple way of greeting is namaste. Yes, yes. I recognize the divinity within you. Yes. Uh, is the simple statement that is their hello and goodbye. Right. Um, it makes a lot more sense given that, that it's a, a country where so many teachers have encountered uh, the otherworldly. Yeah. You know, it's interesting how this this book affects the reader. At least I, I can speak for myself. Like over the course of reading it, I was I was finding it changing things, not in a sense of I ought to do this differently, mm. but I was just noticing things differently. The, just a couple of nights ago, I was a good half an hour, 40 minutes late getting home because I'd spent an extraordinary amount of time trying to save a baby bird in the garage uh. that had fallen from a nest. I'd walked straight past it. Something in me stopped and was like, nope, can't do it. And I went back and I did everything I could to save this little guy. And I'm a pretty empathetic person. I mean, I'm a psychologist, but normally I would have just thought, no yeah. way that guy's going to survive. And I don't know what to do for a baby bird. Isn't that sad? And then walked away. Uh, and I spent a lot of time really trying to help this little guy. And then afterward was like, huh, what's going on? Well, frankly, Dodge, that's part of the reason I wrote this book. You know, there's some evidence now from several studies that college students and nursing students, given a course in near-death experiences, change their behavior and their attitudes. And I thought, well, if that's if that's true, maybe writing a book about it will help people change the way they they see their lives. That um, certainly has affected me a lot. Yeah. One of the things I was really curious about was whether there was any variable that helped predict whether somebody had it or not. Mm. Specifically, I was interested in whether a longer life review, I mean, a longer near-death experience, made it more likely that somebody would describe a life review as part of it. Not necessarily. There is one thing that, that does predict, and that is how sudden and unexpected the brush with death is. Uh, people who know for a long time that they're approaching death, such as people who have a terminal illness and know about it, will often review their lives in the days and weeks before they come to that crisis. Uh, so similarly, people who are uh, considering suicide will often review their lives in great detail before they make an attempt. And it's like they did a lot of that psychological work of reviewing their lives before they got to their crisis, and the life review was less necessary for them. Fascinating. Yeah. It strikes me as really interesting that the huge majority of these experiences are loving, peaceful, indescribably beautiful. Uh, and I wanted to read kind of a fun quote about how difficult it is to describe them, because I'm sure it has bearing on how difficult it is to study them. But um, but a small percentage, not predicted by the kind of life they led, have scary ones. Yeah, this is... This is puzzling because when we first started studying near-death experiences uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s, we didn't hear any of these unpleasant ones. So we assumed that they're all pleasant, blissful experiences. And, you know, as hard as it is to talk about a near-death experience, it's even harder to talk about a problematic one, a, a challenging one, a painful one. So it wasn't until we started looking at hospital cohorts of people, all people who came close to death and asked them about their experiences that we started hearing about these. If you just rely on people who come forward to you, you get people who had blissful experiences. But when you ask everybody who came close to death, you hear some of the unpleasant ones as well. And most people who have studied this say that between 1% and 5% of near-death experiences are unpleasant 
And we don't have any confidence that that's the accurate number because we know how hard it is to talk about these experiences. So there may be a lot more that we don't know about. And there are different kinds of unpleasant experiences. Um, There is a very, very small percentage of those that sound like a traditional hell with fire and brimstone and demons. I've only heard those from people who were raised in a religion that taught that, Um, Mm. you know, Baptists, Roman Catholics. I haven't heard that from anyone else. Um, There's a large number that are just in a black void and they find themselves just floating in nothingness. They're not aware of a body, just their consciousness, nothing to see, nothing to hear. And that is terrifying for most Americans. Interestingly, I've talked to a couple of people who were raised in India as Hindus, and they experienced that, and it was nirvana for them. It was just blissful melting into nothingness. But for Americans, it's quite, it's quite terrifying. But the vast majority of unpleasant near-death experiences sound phenomenologically just like the blissful ones, but they're experienced in a terrifying way. People feel themselves ripped out of their bodies and thrust down a tunnel and faced with this light, and they are terrified of it. And they're trying to fight against it. A lot of these people are people for whom it's important to stay in control of their lives. And no matter what happens in an NDE, you're not in control of what's going on. (laughs) It's happening to you. And that's very terrifying for these people. So they try to fight against it. The more they fight, the more unpleasant it is. And at some point, about half of them give up. They get so exhausted, they just surrender. And as soon as they surrender, it becomes a blissful experience. So what was unpleasant was the fighting against it, not the experience itself. You mentioned that it doesn't have anything to do with the type of life you led, and that's that's true. Um, I've known people who were career criminals who were in jail for, for life, and they had a heart attack in prison and had a blissful near-death experience. And I've talked to people who seemed to lead exemplary lives who had unpleasant ones. And that shouldn't surprise us because we have accounts from Catholic saints throughout the ages who talk about the dark night of the soul. You know, St. Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross. So it's not surprising that you can have these terrifying experiences. Nancy Evans Bush, who herself had an unpleasant experience, um, writes about this in terms of like uh, uh, Joseph Campbell's hero's journey, where you have to go through sometimes through all sorts of torments and travails in order to get to the eventual enlightenment. And it's just a part of the same process. It's a spiritual event, but something you have to struggle with before you get to the positive spiritual events. As you're talking about that, um, just that element there, that that folks who experience a traditional hell, a firing brimstone, you know, classic presentation tended to be people who were prepared for that, who had expected such a thing could exist and others, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about how NDEs do and don't conform to expectations and the worldviews and, you know, spirituality of people who experience them. Well, for the most part, the phenomena, the raw phenomena, leaving the body, life review, going through a tunnel, uh, encountering other entities are the same regardless of what your beliefs are. And in fact, I've talked to a number of people who were atheists and materialists who thought there was nothing after death and were stunned to find something happening to them. Yeah. 
Um, Even troubled, it seemed like sometimes. Sometimes, yes, sometimes, yes, and sometimes yes. a little like just having no idea how to reconcile that. I can understand that because I was like that. I was a materialist, and I would have been shocked to have an near-death experience myself, and probably yes. not pleased about it because yeah. it's upsetting your worldview. But but how people explain these things to themselves is determined, or how they describe it to us is determined by their culture. And I, I mentioned the the being of light uh, being called God by some people and not by others. Um, likewise, the tunnel. Many people describe going through a long, dark, enclosed structure to get from this physical world to the other realm or the other dimension. I understand that as sort of a psychological mechanism. You're here in this physical world. All of a sudden, you're in that other realm. You don't know how you got there. So your, your mind constructs this sort of a tunnel to get there. So, And Americans will often say, that this is a tunnel. But people in countries that don't have a lot of tunnels in less developed countries will not use that metaphor. They may say, I fell into a well or went into a cave. Uh, one fellow that I knew who was a, a truck driver talked about he getting stuck into a tailpipe. So whatever metaphor comes to you to describe the phenomenon is what you, how you describe it. And that's, I think, where the culture plays a role in the near-death experience accounts. It's in describing or interpreting of the phenomenon you're going through. Just to that point right there, and then we'll jump back to this expectations question. You spent some time talking about how hard it is to convey a near-death experience afterward. Um, that for a lot of people, that's one of the biggest reasons they don't even try. There, there just aren't even words. And I had a couple of quotes I wanted to, to read because I think they speak to everything you were just talking about. One person uh, said to you, try to draw an odor using crayons. You can't even begin to try no matter how many crayons you have in your box. That's what it's like describing NDEs with words. No matter how many words you use, you can't really describe what an ND is like. And then another went on to describe something really remarkable that speaks not just to the limitations of words, but the expansiveness of the experience. And I found this really intriguing. And, and I think it also goes to this point of, so when you come back and you try to describe this in human language, you probably use the language you're used to you know, things like fire and brimstone, because that's what you were raised with, but it's probably a whole lot more complex, as this person says. This one said or wrote to you, the language spoken after death was much, much more complex and could literally encapsulate experiences. Even the memories when coming back into my body flattened, simplified, became symbols of what really happened. I believe this flattening happened simply because the human brain can't understand a world so much more complex and possibly so alien. When I read about people having seen streets of gold, it's amusing because that would be a flattened example of a complex visual reference. It's not gold so much as, a vi of, as vibrant and alive, I guess. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point about the brain not being able to process this. I've had several near-death experiences say that they had access to all the information in the universe. And they just had to formulate a question in their mind and they would have the answer. They were told that you will not be able to bring that answer back with you. And a lot of them took it at first as sort of a punishment. You know, you can't do this. And then they realized later on, it's because my brain won't be able to understand it and process it. It's not that I'm not allowed to, but it's physically impossible with this brain to understand it. I can give you a massive gift, but the little box you'll try to take it home in <laughs> is not big enough to contain it. <laughs> right. 
right? Right. Yeah. Some near death experiences will resort to nonverbal means, like uh, trying to draw a picture of it or trying to write music uh, to describe it. I wanted to share the uh, story my mother in law had of an NDE mm -hmm. as a young woman, partly because it, it, uh, I think illustrates some of the classic examples, but also because it's one that has some elements I've never heard of in all uh -huh. these years of listening to accounts of them, and I would love your take. When my late mother-in-law was uh, young enough to have a toddler in the back seat, she was driving down the highway, and a truck in front of her um, had some kind of cargo that was loose. I think it was like an appliance, something as you know huge as a refrigerator that came off the truck, bounced on the pavement, came straight up her hood, and at the moment it was to come through the windshield, everything stopped. And her car filled with light and immense love. I mean, just overwhelming love. I get emotional every time I tell mm -hmm. this story. Yes. Um, and she felt or understood more than heard the communication that she had done all she had needed to accomplish in this life, and that this was one of the moments she could come home if she wanted to. And she was really tempted because she could feel what that home felt like. And then, though, realized, but I have a little girl in the back seat who needs me. And so, with, I think, some real regret, um, you know, but clarity, she said, I need to stay for my daughter. And... There was an understanding and a sense of parting, and then time sped up again, and the refrigerator coming over her hood suddenly and impossibly went straight up and over her car. And she pulled over, rattled, and a whole lot of cars pulled over with her, and everybody jumped out and said, what the hell just happened? That was impossible. I saw that refrigerator. It would have killed you. How did it go over your car? Like, everybody agreed that that couldn't have happened. And only she knew why. It was, it's the only account I'm aware of that's entirely embodied, but still involves all the choice, right? Like the sense of she was visited rather than her leaving and going to some other world. Is that unfamiliar or uncommon? No, no. It happens sometimes when people just fear they're going to die. And actually, uh, Ian Stevenson coined the term fear death experiences rather than near death experiences. And there are a number of uh, cases of people who fell from, from mountaintops um, and had a, a near-death experience, even though their hearts had never stopped. In fact, the first collection of near-death experiences was published in 1892 uh, by Albert von St. Gallenheim, a, a Swiss geologist in the yearbook of the Swiss Alpine Club. He fell and had a near-death experience as he was falling and yet landed in a snowdrift, broke some bones, but didn't. his heart never stopped as far as we know. So these are like fear-death experiences. You think you're going to die and you have this experience. And I think the, a lot of things that your mother-in-law had are very typical. Certainly the time slowing down and stopping is very common in your death experiences. And during that instant when times have stopped, you have time to experience all sorts of things, including this conversation she had uh, with some other entity while time was stopped. And then it sped up again. and, and Nothing, no time had gone by for, for passerbys who were watching this. And her, her decision to come back is also something that we hear a lot, that people feel in this other realm that that is home. And a lot of people use that word, home. That was home. And yet they know that home was waiting for them 
anytime they choose to go there. And they're not quite ready to leave their responsibilities here yet. So they choose to come back with fair confidence that they're going back there to home eventually. It left me wondering um, how often folks who do die and stay deceased had a choice and decided just to go home. Yeah. You know, because it sounds like there are options. It sounds like sometimes you do have a choice and sometimes you don't. That's right. As we hear in some of these accounts where somebody else died at the same time, it's like your grandmother's not going to make it, but you need to go home. You know, you need to go back to Earth. But you wonder how many how many just say, oh, man, I'm done. I can't wait for the next life. Yeah, I know. Some people say with, with supreme confidence, I made the decision to come back. And others say with the same confidence, I was told against my will I had to come back. And I, we, there's no way we can corroborate either of those statements. You know, they're all just subjective. We can't do anything to say whether they're right or wrong. So I'm not sure what to do with that from a scientific perspective. It's just, that's what, that's what they say to us. Part of why I was so interested to have you come on this show is because we are really interested in how change comes about, yeah. especially when it happens mysteriously, paradoxically, and uh, quite powerfully. Mm-hmm. Um, when it's not just a will-driven, you know, plodding toward a goal, but right, something, right. you know. And literally, I, I can't imagine anything I've ever heard of that has a more comprehensive and profound effect on somebody's life than the sometimes seconds they spend in an NDE. As a psychiatrist, this is the most amazing thing to me about the experience because, you know, I make my living trying to help people change their lives and it's hard work and we work for a long time to get fairly small changes and use this experience, which in a matter of seconds totally transforms people's attitudes, beliefs, values, behavior. They typically come back much more spiritual, not more religious, but more spiritual, more compassionate, more caring, more altruistic more aware of relationships and our relationship to each other and to the divine, and much less interested in things of this world, material possessions, power, prestige, fame, reputation, competition. Um, they just don't mean the same thing to them anymore. And this, this may sound like a wonderful change, but it can really wreak havoc in people's lives. Let me give you some examples of that. Um, one fellow I knew, Steve Price, was a career Marine. He was a a schoolyard bully before he joined the Marines and his goal in life was to be a macho Marine and, and, you know, kill people. And he was uh, a sergeant in Vietnam leading his troops in the jungle. And he was shot in the chest and had shrapnel all throughout his lungs. So he had to be airvac to a hospital in the Philippines. And during an operation to clean out his lungs, he had a near death experience. And he woke up from that totally transformed feeling like all people are the same. There's no difference between you and me. And it was just inconceivable that he could shoot somebody and kill somebody else. And yet he went through rehab and then was sent back into the jungle to fight again and found he couldn't shoot his gun. Hmm. So he he left the Marines at that point and came back to the States and ended up training as a medical technician. And I've heard this again and again from people who lead who are in professions where Violence is an inherent part of it. For example, I knew a policeman in Connecticut who had a, a, a he bled out after a routine surgery and had a near-death experience. And when he recovered, went back to the field and uh, 
found that he almost got his, his partner killed one day because he couldn't fire his gun. And he ended up becoming a teacher. Uh, we often see these people retraining in some helping profession, uh, education, healthcare, social work, clergy, something like that. I've also known a number of people who were in cutthroat business uh, opportunities who came back from a near-death experience thinking getting ahead at someone else's expense is, is absurd. You know, we're all in this together. And some will then change their careers and some will just change the way they work their business and they'll become much more compassionate towards their employees and their uh, customers and their competitors. Uh, but it totally changes how they lead their lives. And this can often lead to problems in a marriage. Uh, if the marriage was based on um, something that wasn't very spiritual, that was based on, on some physical stuff, uh, this can totally transform the marriage and lead to breakups. And a lot of people get divorced after a near-death experience. It's as if one member of a family of a, of a, a marriage has a religious conversion, the other one doesn't. That can be very hard to work through. Well, one literally found God. And yeah. The, <laughs> the yeah. other, it hasn't quite had that benefit. Yeah. Yeah. The other story of an ND in my family happened between my uh, great-grandparents. Um, part of why I've been interested in this subject all my life is because I heard about this as a little kid, and it just always seemed like the obvious. I mean, I just always assumed this is everybody knew about these things, because <laughs> right? And so there's this funny story of... Um, of my great grandmother uh, dying during childbirth. Uh, no, I think it was actually during a miscarriage, um, maybe hemorrhaged or something. Left her body, entered the classic blissful state, and was moving toward home, and encountered her husband as she looked back on her body, praying, you know, fervently mm -hmm. for her survival. Somehow, as a result of that either made a decision or maybe was influenced somehow to be pulled back into her body. Mm -hmm. No one's quite sure whether it was a joke or not, but she was kind of mad at him, you know, for the rest of yep. their lives because yeah. she didn't want to come back. Um, yeah. And I think there was some tongue-in-cheek to that, you know, to that scolding, but, but I, you know, le legitimately there was grief around, I, it's, it's not as easy here. Yeah, many people who uh, are brought back by doctors are very angry about that. And they may be sad, they may be angry, they may be confused. Um, and it takes a while for them to, to work through that. I found that the best way to do that is to have them talk to other near-death experiences who've also been through the same type of experience. And they can share what's helpful to them. It's something like an AA system where you meet other people who've been through the same thing and they can share what's been helpful and not helpful for them. It sounds like for many people as they come back, part of why it's hard to talk about is the fear that it'll be trivialized or diminished yeah. by not only the telling of it, but the disbelief on the other side. Like yeah. there's some fear about it. Yeah. Yeah. Disbelief and labeling, you know, you're crazy, you're delusional, you're just making this up. And that stops a lot of people from, from telling about it. Uh, you know, there are people that I have interviewed after they've been close to death and they've told me about leaving their bodies. And we've shared about that. And I'll come back to see them a few months later and they'll say, well, now that I know you're not going to make fun of me, I'll tell you what really happened. And they tell me about seeing a deceased relative. Mm. And then months later, they'll say, now that I know you're not going to make fun of me for that, I'll tell you what really happened. And it keeps going on and on. And mm. there's some people I've been, I've known for 30 years who tell me there's some stuff I still haven't been able to tell you. Wow. It's just too personal. I can't share it. It's, it's meant for me and not for anybody else. 
and I can't share it with anybody. Amazing. Well, you, you, you described that there are some folks who go over and what they experience, or at least the words they find to describe it, fit their worldview. Yeah. But there are many who go, and maybe they've been raised in a particular religion, but their experience on the other side is, let's say, non-denominational. Um, it's, it is not a clear Christ figure who comes and judges them as their parents told them he would, and deems them worthy, and, you know, they see all the other ones being marched off to hell kind of thing just to pick one example, because there are many worldviews, and then have to come back and reconcile that, not just with their own beliefs, but with all the people who still believe the other yeah. thing. Yeah. What's yeah. that like? Yeah, yeah. Well, there certainly are people who come back to the same religion, mm -hmm. uh, but, but the vast majority come back thinking that they're equally comfortable in any house of worship, that wow. they see the spirituality in all religions, and that they're basically all telling the same story, but with different trappings and, and different dogma, but the core of all religions, being compassionate, being kind, loving the divine, is all the same. And they will say that, you know, I like the ritual of my, my church, I like the music, but, you know, the God I met was much bigger than the God of my church. <laughs> uh, right. And they feel like they, that uh, they have a spirituality that transcends what their church taught them. It does make me wonder how many paths, religious paths, oh, yeah. come from teachers who long ago themselves had NDEs and did their best to describe what they could. And of course, words failed because they must. And people understood what they could because little brains are not, you know, the brains they would be on the other side. And, you know, it just keeps getting smaller and smaller as it as we play the telephone game over generations. Right. And right. they're kind of left with this very small idea of what religion or what what the other side really is. Yeah, yeah. You know, people have this experience that can't be put into words, but they, they have to, to communicate it to someone else. And then their followers take the words as literal truth and concretize it, and they miss the point because they're just focusing on, on what the words were, were. Yeah. There's this sense of... I crossed over to somewhere where there is a sense of God, of this light, of of being loved, of a, accompanied, being clearly known, uh, um, mm. and and that my my life has a kind of purpose that the other side is aware of and encouraging me to participate in in new and better ways. Right. So somebody over there really knows us and is is tracking with us when they come back. And I don't even know how to ask this well enough perhaps to to get to it, but let's I'll try. You've described some of just the behavioral changes that go with this their new perspective. Mm -hmm. Do people talk about a new awareness of God or of this light in their lives? Yes, they do. They definitely do. You said they go to someplace else, and that's the word they use because you have to talk that way, but it's not a physical location somewhere else. It's like another aspect of what we're in right now. You know, you talk about the sports world or the, the, the financial world. It's not a different world. It's, it's this world, but a different aspect of it. So when they talk about going to this other realm, they didn't go anywhere. They just sort of looked at a different fa aspect that we don't usually see. Yes. But it's, it's here. It's nowhere else. It's right here. And they can still access it sometimes and feel the divine here with them, still guiding them here. And they can be a part of that spiritual world right here. Now, this gets to a really intriguing point that kind of blew my mind. 
starting with something we all have thought about, the difference between the brain and the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea that what if the brain isn't just, you know, the human vehicle, the tool the mind uses to operate in this world, but the brain has one has an additional very important function, which is to limit what we're yeah. aware of. Yeah. That it, it, uh, you get, take it from there. Like, yeah. it's a really interesting idea to me. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, this has been an idea that's been, um, like a, a minority opinion in, in neuropsychologists for, for centuries. Hippocrates wrote that the brain is, is the interpreter of the mind or the messenger of the mind. And different people have talked about it in different, uh, metaphors based on the technology of their day. Um, and what people talk about most now is is the idea of a, of a filter, that it, the brain lets in certain things and keeps out other things. Uh, sometimes they liken it to a radio tuner. There are thousands of radio stations out there. If you listen to all of them at once, you wouldn't be able to hear anything. So you use the radio tuner to, to zero in on one particular station and filter out all the rest. So you can hear and understand what's coming through. And they say that the brain has this filtering function that can filter out irrelevant things and just let in the thing that's important. Now, this makes sense from a, an evolutionary perspective because the brain is a physical organ like all our other organs, and it evolved to adapt to the physical world. So, for example, our eyes don't let in the entire electromagnetic spectrum, just those wavelengths that are important to our survival. We don't see the ultraviolet or the infrared. We just see this narrow band that's important to us. Likewise, we don't hear all frequencies. We just hear those that are important to us. So the brain, of course, as a physical organ, evolved to let in those thoughts that are relevant to survival in the physical world. You know, the, the mind may encounter deceased entities. It may encounter divine beings. That's not important to finding food and shelter and a mate. <laughs> in this physical world. So those ideas are all filtered out. And what gets let in are just things that are relevant to the physical world. And what happens presumably in a near-death experience is that the brain is going offline for one reason or another, and the filtering function gets weakened so that this other material is allowed to come through. And this is not the only... uh, only, only example we have of where this happens. Um, there's a phenomenon called terminal lucidity in which people who have end-stage dementia, who haven't been able to recognize family for years and haven't been able to communicate, suddenly in the hours or sometimes days before they die, they become completely lucid again. And they recognize family and carry on coherent conversations. And the family may get very excited thinking they're getting better. But you know, if you've got Alzheimer's disease, you don't get better. Um, and then after a matter of hours or sometimes a day or so, the patient dies. And we have no medical explanation for how this can be. But if you think of it in terms of the filter theory, the brain's deteriorating eventually so much that the filter just disappears. Likewise, we've done some neuroimaging studies in the last decade with people who were on psychedelic drug trips. A lot of this is done at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore and Imperial College in London. We used to think that psychedelic drugs worked by stimulating the brain to hallucinate. So you'd see more electrical activity in certain parts of the brain. 
But what these studies have, have shown with a variety of psychedelics is that the more elaborate mystical experiences are associated with less electrical activity in the brain and less connection between different parts of the brain. So that again, it looks like you get decreased brain activity and then more stuff comes in. Another uh, piece of evidence for the filter theory. Now, of course, this is just a model. It's not reality. It's just, you know, you don't want to confuse the map of the territory, but this is a way of talking about this function of the brain to limit thoughts. Well, and it helps understand, it helps us understand then an NDE. I can't remember if this was a metaphor you put forward or one that um, was quoted, but it was like the, imagine you're driving in a car on a rainy night and you can only see a little ways in front of you. You can barely see the road and so forth. Take it from there. Yeah. And then a flash of lightning, you know, illuminates the whole, the whole world and you see the trees and the houses and everything else. And then it's over and you can't see anything except your headlights again. But you know what's out there because you remember having seen it. You can't forget that after right, that. Right. Forever. And that's one of the interesting elements of the NDE is that, I mean, as you say, that the brain helps you focus on just what's important. And of course, the irony of that is that it, um, afterward, what they find is that wasn't what was important at all. <laughs> it was what right. the mind revealed, right? Right. Um, and there's something really intriguing about NDEs to me, and that's that they, as far as I know, seem to be basically unforgettable. Like, the, the, over decades and decades, the memory remains pristine. And you are one of the folks, one of the few, maybe only, who've studied folks over, say, 40 yeah. years yeah. and been able to measure, you know, how well that, you know, how that memory changes over time. Right. Tell right, us about right. that. Right. Other people have, have looked at... Um, near-death experiences that happened last year and that happened 30 years ago and found that the there are no differences. But I've actually looked at people now who I interviewed 40 years ago and compared their descriptions now and then, and I didn't find any difference at all, uh, that their, their, their descriptions of it were identical of, over the decades. Yes, intriguing. The only other phenomenon I can think of that also creates enormous change and remains unforgettable, seared into the mind, I encounter regularly as a trauma psychologist yeah. and it's trauma itself that there is something about the extraordinary details somebody will remember as they recall incest or rape or abuse of some kind let's say uh where they will remember you know the smell of the breath the exact yeah. sounds the sound of the car door and so forth and in, and until we can work with that in a way that lets it recede into the past it affects them forever and this is like it's like happy trauma it's the exact opposite you know it it complete transformation yeah 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 as as you know in the PTSD you've got this combination of um uh, intrusive memories and and you know it's, it remains very vivid, combined with attempts to suppress it and forget it and not go there. And what you see in near-death experiences is you see the intrusive memories and you see the vivid memories persisting, but not the attempts to forget it and to repress it. You see the, the not the avoidance part of the PTSD. Very different from that, yeah. and understandably so. One of the things you do really well in the book, writing about this as a scientist, as opposed to the books that are written from the point of an experiencer, is that <clears throat> you describe the decades of work you've done to give skeptics 
a, a fair chance, yeah, right? Yeah. I mean, to, to take all of their, their points seriously and to go investigate them. And one by one, you know, you go in a, and address these. Do you want to name a couple of them, including, if you would, whatever you have found most compelling as a skeptic yourself and, and how you addressed it? Yeah, well, you know, as I said, I started off as a materialist and I, I was looking for a physiological explanation for these phenomena. And there's a part of me that still thinks we may someday find a physiological explanation for this. I can't imagine what it would be. You know, the first thing that came to mind was lack of oxygen to the brain. No matter how you come close to death, that's one of the final common pathways. Uh, but typically what happens when you have lack of oxygen is you get very confused, uh, frightened, agitated. You sometimes become belligerent, combative. And it's very unlike the calm, peaceful, uh, consistent uh, the feelings from the near-death experience. In addition now, some people have been able to measure the blood levels of oxygen in people who are near death. Uh, Mike Sabom did this here in the U.S. and Sam Parnia did it in, in England. Um, Pim Van Lummel did it in the Netherlands. And they find that those people who report near-death experiences actually have better oxygen uh, supply than those who don't. Mm. Um, what that may mean is that people who have better oxygen supply simply can remember their NDEs and people who don't, don't remember it. Um, but it certainly shows that lack of oxygen is not causing NDEs. Right. Uh, similarly, uh, another possibility was that drugs given to people who are approaching death would cause NDEs. And again, we find that the more drugs people are given, the less likely they are to report a near-death experience. Hmm. Um, an appealing hypothesis is that some uh, brain, brain chemicals are produced under stress that can produce NDEs. For example, we know endorphins are produced, which give you a blissful sensation like the runner's high. Um, but there's really no way to test those hypotheses at this point. Um, we're talking about chemicals that are produced in very minute amounts, and we don't even know where in the brain to look for them. And you can't really assay someone's brain at the time they're having this near-death crisis. Um, there's not much of a way to test that one. Well, we've tested several different hypotheses that have been proposed, um, and we have not found any evidence to support any one of them. All of them beg the question of how a physical process in the brain, a chemical or electrical process, can create a subjective thought. And no one's come up with a hint of a suggestion of an idea of how this could possibly be. Uh, I'm not talking about out-of-body thoughts. I'm talking about in-the-body, normal, everyday thoughts. We have no idea how the brain can create a thought. And it's something we will perhaps understand on the other side and not be able to bring back with us. You know, it's just one of those things that may not yeah. fit inside our little human minds. Yeah. I'd love to talk about some of the paradoxes that stand out to you in this process, as you can imagine, given a show called The Change Paradox. Mm -hmm. I, I find my my eyebrows rise when I hear those. Um, can you tell us about some of the things that have stood out to you? Well, uh, you know, a lot of them are the, are the way people look, describe things that don't quite make sense. Like a lot of them say, there was no time on the other side. That time, as we know it, does not exist. It's just an artifact of this physical world. Mm -hmm. And then when they tell you that, that about the near-death experience, they tell it as if it's a sequence of events. I did this, and then this happened, and then this happened. And how can you have a sequence of events if there's no time? Right. And when I ask them that, they say, well... If, as I tell you now, it's a paradox. 
But over there, it wasn't a paradox. Yes. Everything was happening at the same time, and it was happening in a sequence, and there was, there was no problem with that. You describe also the paradox that as, you know, that that in experiencing death, people come back and live much more richly. Yeah. Including even as they experience the profound nature of reality on the other side, they come back to this material reality and yet enjoy their, yes. their sensual pleasures that much more. I yeah. find that intriguing too. Yeah, yeah. One, one of the most uh, common things people say after a near-death experience is that they're no longer afraid of death, that they've experienced it, and it's blissful, it's home, uh, there's nothing to be afraid of. And when I first heard that, as a psychiatrist, I'm thinking, this is going to make people more suicidal. Yeah. I've known lots of people who were contemplating suicide, but deterred by fear of what might happen. If you tell them, nothing bad's going to happen, you know? So yeah. I, I did a study of this, and I interviewed everyone who came into my hospital with a suicide attempt. And I compared those who had a near-death experience as a result of the suicide attempt and those who didn't. And those who had a near-death experience were much less suicidal on follow-up interviews than people who didn't have NDEs, which seemed counterintuitive. Paradoxical and indeed. Yes, yes. So when I asked them why, a lot of them said, well, now I see that there's meaning and purpose in everything that happens that I didn't see before. Or they might say, now that I realize that this pro these problems I had aren't really important in context of something of the larger thing that I know I'm part of. But the most common thing people said was, when you lose your fear of dying, you lose your fear of living. If you're not afraid of losing your life, you're not afraid to jump in with both feet and experience life to the fullest, take some chances, you know, just live in the moment and enjoy everything. And life becomes much more fulfilling, much more meaningful. You see, you still have the same problems, but you see them as purposeful. There's something I'm supposed to learn from this, not something I'm supposed to run away from. And life becomes much more meaningful for them after a near-death experience. Again, it's that sense of the spirituality not being confined to the other realm, but brought back to this one as well. And their spirituality here is just as much as it is over there. I've read that, and certainly thought about it for a lot of years, that every fear is a fear of death, mm. a death of some kind, that every fear ultimately is a fear of grief, of loss. You know, if I take this step, if I make this, if I make this effort, if I experience this, what, what disappointment may befall me, you know, what will I lose? Right. And I guess if you've lost everything and it was the most blissful thing you could experience, it would have to change your sense of loss even as a concept. Yeah, it does. It does. It makes you less frightened of everything in life. Because, you know, you've been through the worst and it wasn't bad. Yeah. Now, having said that, let me say also that people who've had a near-death experience still grieve when their loved ones die. You know, they still feel the loss of their constant connection every day. And they still feel sad about not having that. Even though they may know that the loved one is now going to someplace better, they still feel sad that they don't have that daily connection with them. So... If I'm rescuing baby birds after just reading this wonderful mm -hmm. book, I'm yes. trying to imagine how this has changed you. If you can take the scientist hat off for a minute and tell us how has this changed Bruce Grayson himself, just as a man, to have done this yeah. for almost 50 years? Yeah, well, I'm much more humble than I was. 
No, yeah, I started out as, as a fairly arrogant materialistic scientist that we're going to understand everything. And I, now I know there are some questions science is not just, just not yet uh, equipped to answer, at least as science as we know it now. I have some hope that science is going to expand and someday be able to tackle these questions better. But as it stands now, we're not going to understand these things. And some things may ultimately not be understandable in terms of our language and our brain's ability to understand. And that's okay. I'm okay now with not knowing everything, with the unknown. It's not scary for me anymore. Mm. I have become much more altruistic in my behavior. I'd like to think I was always a compassionate person, but I was always held back from being behaviorally more altruistic. And now I'm less inhibited about that because of this work with near-death experiences. I'm much more open, much more spontaneous. I think I'm much more open to ideas as well. Uh, when people come to me, my, my trainees with all sorts of crazy ideas they want to study, I don't say, no, it's ridiculous. Don't try that. I say, what do you think you're going to learn from this? How can you design an experiment to test it? And we go with it. So, you know, I, I think life has become much more enjoyable for me as a result. I'm not as reluctant to take chances. I'm not as afraid of doing things. And it's, it's just made me a lot more. Uh, I think, open to to experiencing life than I was before. I would have to imagine so. Can you tell us a little bit about those moments where you just kind of can't help but drop from your head into your heart, where I know that both the doctor and the scientist, you know, you, you, you mean to be sitting there working from your head to understand this, to figure out how to categorize this, to under, you know, to convey this or to study it further. But there must be moments where you hear a story and you just choke up. I mean, just brim with tears. Like it's all, ugh. Can you talk about some of that? Yeah, often it happens when I'm hearing a story for the first time. And it just, it just gets you and, and you... You end up feeling it down there and, and uh, you get caught up in it. Um, yeah. And depending on what my role is, I've got to kind of fight that and come back to my scientist or my doctor, whatever I'm doing at this point, at that point. Um, but it also happens when I'm retelling some of these stories that are so, so moving, especially when they're uh, near death experiences that I've become good friends with and I know them very well. And I feel some of the same emotions they feel when I retell their stories. Mm. And that, you know, when I tell that at a conference and my voice starts to choke up, um, my wife gets furious about that. But new mm. death experiences in the audience love it. You know, they say, yes. oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've gotten to watch some of your interviews on, you know, YouTube and so on. And those moments where I could see like your thro throat caught for just a minute were really touching to me because it helped me know that all, the, all of you is there for this. Yeah. That's beautiful. There, there's a day at some point where, statistically speaking, there's a decent chance you're going to experience a life review <laughs> when you cross over yourself. I think so. Do you have an idea as you look back on this incredible career of yours and the life you've had and what sounds like a beautiful, beautiful friendship and partnership with your wife? Like, what will the what highlights will stand out to you? I have no idea. You no know, people, idea. <laughs> people who've had this say that they were stunned by the things that came back to them. Yeah. Because they weren't they weren't big things. They weren't being a doctor and saving lives. They were, you know, fairly trivial things you could barely remember where you were kind to someone when you didn't need to be. 
Um, and, you know, frankly, it's, it's almost a joke with me now, but that when I'm in a situation where I could help someone, but it would be difficult, like with your baby bird, you know, I could walk by or I could, I think to myself, how's this going to look in my life review? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. As I'm, you know, frustrated with my 13 year old, how's it going to feel to experience, you know, my father's yeah. words right yes. now? I yes. will experience that again someday. That's, yeah. that's affected me a lot right there. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it, it, I, I do think the odds are that there's going to be something nice waiting for us when we die. Oh. I don't know that for certain. I'm a scientist, you know. Yeah. But I think the odds are that the evidence suggests there is something out there. Uh, what it is, I don't know, because I think we can't take literally what the native experiences say. They're their best attempt to, con- to communicate it. But I fully expect to be very surprised at what happens over there. That it's probably something far beyond what I can try to imagine with my brain now. There's a really interesting account Um I saw online of a woman telling the story of having died of anorexia. And she was visited by, and she was clear that this was definitely God and not just a being of light. But she didn't experience him from the front, only behind her. And she experienced a life review that I think she described as two life reviews consecutively, but I think they may have happened simultaneously, as we understand time now is different there. But she experienced it first, looking at all the things she thought were important. Captain oh. of the cheerleaders, my looks right, in the right. mirror, my straight A's in school, right? The deterioration of my body, you know. And then what God thought was important. And there are these tiny little examples of a moment where she was kind to a homeless man, where yes, she helped yes. somebody up in recess. And like these, uh, you know, otherwise forgettable moments where she just showed love. That was it. Those were the ones that mattered. Well, I have to say it's an extraordinary intellectual achievement to have had your career and to have captured it so well Thank in you. this book. Thank you. But Thank also you. really an act of love to have gone to the trouble of putting it out there for the rest of us. Thank you. Thank you. It's Pete. Crazy, right? In just a bit, Dodge will be back with a reading of some of the NDE experiences Dr. Grayson includes in his book. For now, I hope you'll join me in a meditation celebrating just how small my mind is to be able to understand a fraction of the potential that is out there, you know, after all this. Next week on the Afterthoughts podcast, Dodge and I try to unpack all of this and undoubtedly tell of our own faux death experiences should be a good one we're wrapping up the season i think after that we only have one more episode that'll be our season wrap up uh, of our after with our afterthoughts we're gonna try and integrate a lot of what we have learned over the last uh, batch of episodes another should be a fun one thank you all supporters who have come out and supported us at truestory.fm slash the change paradox your support has helped us get through this season, and we couldn't do it without you. And now, Dodge offers some stories in readings from After by Dr. Bruce Grayson. May they inspire your journey as well.
Hey everybody, we're going to try something different for the experiential exercise following Bruce Grayson's book, After. I thought what I would do would be to see if I could give you a little bit of a taste of the experience I've had having read the book. I've been really moved by some of these accounts, but especially by the life review process. I thought what I'd do would be to read you some extended passages from the book and see if maybe for today what you do would be to just sit back and get comfortable, just get a little bit daydreamy, and just let these wash over you the way they have over me. Just notice what you notice. What I'd be especially interested in is you're just getting curious. What if I had an experience like that? What if there's this vast cosmic intelligence that's loving and accepting that would love me to begin to make shifts in my life, much like people who've had a life review? What would I see in my life review if I experienced it the way these people describe theirs? And these are just two or three, but imagine if you'd read hundreds or listened to dozens and dozens, as I have, they start to affect you. So I'm going to read you one that starts with a guy named Tom Sawyer, whose truck fell on him as he was working on it uh, from underneath. Tom described at some point during the NDE that followed, reliving painful incidents from earlier in his life. Quote, I experienced a total life review. The best way to describe it is to give you an example. When I was around eight years old, my father told me to mow the lawn and cut the weeds in the yard. Aunt Gay, my mother's sister, lived in the cottage out back. She was always fun to be with. Certainly all the kids thought she was a cool person to know. She had described to me her plans for some wildflowers that grew on little vines in the backyard. Leave them alone now, Tommy, she said. However, my father told me to mow the lawn and cut the weeds. Now, I could have explained to my father that Aunt Gay wanted the weeds left to grow in this particular area. Or I could have explained to Aunt Gay that father had just told me to mow the lawn and said to cut that patch of weeds. Or I could methodically and deliberately go ahead and mow the yard and cut the weeds. I did that. I deliberately decided to be bad. To be malicious. My Aunt Gay never said a word to me. Nothing was ever mentioned. I thought, <laughs> wow, I got away with it. End of story. Well, guess what? I not only relived it in my life review, but I relived every exact thought and attitude, even the air temperature and things I couldn't possibly have measured when I was eight years old. For example, at that time, I wasn't aware of how many mosquitoes were in the area. In their life review, though, I could have counted the mosquitoes. Everything was more accurate than could possibly be perceived in the reality of the original event. I experienced things that cannot be perceived. I watched me mowing the lawn from straight above, anywhere from several hundred to a couple of thousand feet, as though I were a camera. I watched all of that. My life review was absolutely, positively, everything, basically from the first breath of life right through the accident. It was that panoramic view. It was everything. 
Grayson then goes on to say, I had heard other experience describe reliving their lives in exquisite detail, and I could understand that a psychological reaction to the threat of death. But then Tom went on to describe an additional feature of his life review that was harder for me to understand. Tom relived his entire life, not only through his own eyes, but also from the perspective of other people. He described this aspect graphically. Quote, I not only re-experienced my eight-year-old attitude and the kind of excitement and joy of getting away with something, but I was also observing this entire event as a 33-year-old adult with the wisdom and philosophy that I was able to attain by that time. But it was more than that. I also experienced it exactly as though I were my Aunt Gay when she walked out of the back door and saw the weeds had been cut. I knew the series of thoughts that bounced back and forth in her mind. Oh, my goodness, what has happened? Oh, well, Tommy must have forgotten what I said. But he couldn't have forgotten. Oh, no, knock it off. Tommy's never done anything like that. Gee, it was so important. He had to know. He, he couldn't have known. Back and forth, back and forth, between thinking of the possibility and then saying to herself, well, it is possible. No, Tommy isn't like that. It doesn't matter anyway. I love him. I'll never mention it. God forbid, if he did forget and I reminded him, well, that would hurt his feelings. Should I confront him with it and just ask him? What I'm telling you is, I was in my Aunt Gay's body. I was in her eyes. I was in her emotions. I was in her unanswered questions. I experienced the disappointment, the humiliation. It was very devastating to me. It changed my attitude quite a bit as I experienced it. In addition to this, what's probably more important spiritually speaking, I was able to observe the scene absolutely positively, unconditionally. In other words, not with the horrendous emotional ill feelings that my Aunt Gay experienced. I experienced it with this unconditional love that is only God's eyes or the eyes of Jesus Christ, or the light of Jesus, or the light of Buddha enlightened, the spiritual entity. No judgmental aspect whatsoever. This is simultaneous with the total devastation of what I created in my aunt's life, and the arrogance, the snide little thoughts, the bad feelings, and the excitement of what I created in my own life at that young age. I want to go on to um, share another one. This one, um, Barbara Harris Whitfield, she had an, an NDE at age 32, um, where she had a chance to have a life review from a very different point of view, this time less about her own actions and more about a completely new understanding of the actions of her very abusive mother and the terribly dysfunctional home she grew up in. Everything came flooding back, she wrote. I witnessed my brother's rage at my mother's abuse and then turning around and giving it to me. I saw how we were all connected in this dance that started with my mother. I saw how her physical body expressed her emotional pain. I could hear myself saying, no wonder, no wonder. I could feel how she abused me because she hated herself. I saw how I'd given up in order to survive. I forgot that I was a child. I became my mother's mother. I suddenly knew that my mother had had the same thing happen to her in her childhood. She took care of her father during his seizures, 
And as a child, she gave up on herself to take care of him. As children, she and I both became anything and everything others needed. As my life review continued, I also saw my mother's soul, how painful her life was, how lost she was. In my life review, I saw she was a good person caught in helplessness. I saw her beauty, her humanity, and her needs that had gone unattended in her own childhood. I loved her and understood her. We may have been trapped, but we were still souls connected in our dance of life by an energy source that had created us. As my life review continued, I got married and I had my own children, and I saw that I was on the edge of repeating the cycle of abuse and trauma that I had experienced as a child. I was becoming like my mother. As my life unfolded before my eyes, I witnessed how severely I had treated myself because that was the behavior shown and taught to me as a child. I realized that the only big mistake I had made in my life of 32 years was that I had never learned to love myself. Grayson goes on then to write you guys about kind of reflect, reflecting on, on the many life reviews he's read and, and encountered in his over a thousand interviews. He writes, And for people who have NDEs and then return, their life review can not only help them cope with losses and find meaning in their lives, but also help them make changes in their behavior based on what they've learned. Tom's re-experiencing his life events not only through his eyes, but also from the perspective of others, helped him understand the pain he had caused others and avoided repeating that behavior. Barbara's reliving her childhood trauma, not only through her experience, but also from her mother's life, helped her understand and come to terms with her own abuse and to make changes in her life to avoid perpetuating that abusive cycle with her own children. So I read these to you because I want to give you some sense that there's a change that's possible, a change that can happen in literally in seconds or minutes at most, quite literally. But what if it isn't an NDE that's really necessary? It's just a willingness to have a completely different perspective about what we're doing here. I want to read you one more. Grayson writes, of course, the true test of a spiritual path is not what people feel or say, but whether it translates into everyday life. As educator Frank Crane put it, quote, the golden rule is of no use to you whatever unless you realize it's your move. Grayson goes on to write, Fran Sherwood had an NDE during an emergency abdominal surgery when she was 47. She described the importance of focusing not on the experience itself, but on acting on what she learned. Quote, All of this had and still has such a profound effect on my life that I've not been the same. Yet, I'm still me, perhaps a freer person than before. All my values have changed and are still changing, becoming clearer. There's often a sense of hunger for a deeper involvement with my fellow man, and I'm always seeking a closer touch with God. And along with the daily routine of living, I try to improve whatever I can, wherever I can, and to spread the message of love, all in the small ways that we do. The experience is valid, and there's a certain joy and awe in relating it. 
but the moment comes when the experience ceases to be the focal point. You have to really look upon it only as a beginning, a new birth, if you will. And from that point, you begin to grow. This time, the growth is a new reality. It points you to becoming involved with others. The self begins to dwindle away, and though you may try to hang on to the near and dear of self, you really have to let go. For if you do not, you'll be negating the purpose you now have. This growth is for your good and ultimate happiness. Over and above the talking about it, the sharing, then has to come the action. Not that you have to stop talking or sharing, but now included in that is the action. The action of doing what we were sent back for. It may have been presented to each of us in different ways, but the same message comes out loud and clear. We all know what it is, and though it can be said in a thousand ways, there is only one word that says it all. Love. And the message is this. Just as I have loved you, you must also love one another. This is an irrevocable truth. Thank you for listening, everybody. I hope you find in there just something you could take with you today, something you could wonder about. What would that vast intelligence, that unconditionally loving presence on the other side want you to know? What would you experience about this life? What do you suppose you'd come back ready to change? <laughs>